This is episode number 119 with expert climber and New York Times bestselling author, Jim Davidson. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. My goal is for you to gain more clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, what the best version of yourself is capable of, and then to give you the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person a reality. Today I bring you Jim Davidson. He's lived through one of the craziest stories I've ever heard in my entire life. Jim is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Ledge, an inspirational story of friendship and survival. In June of 1992, Jim and his climbing partner and his best friend, Mike Price, summited Mount Rainier, but then only one of them made it all the way back down. This book walks you through this tragic accident from that climb and how Jim has been able to bounce back from it. An essential word for you to know during this interview is crevasse. A crevasse is defined as a deep open crack, especially one in a glacier. And what's also important to know is that they are often hidden. I'm going to start this episode off a little bit differently today by reading you an excerpt from the book. This excerpt will be the start of the tragic incident that he went through back in 1992. But before I do so, make sure that when you're listening to the episode that you take a screenshot of it and post it on your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you and Jim at resilience with climber Jim. And make sure you share this inspiring story with a friend who you know would enjoy it. But without further ado, I take you to page nine of The Ledge. I stab my ice axe shaft into the snow, and it sinks in the usual six inches before resisting. Stepping forward, I press down my right boot, I sink to my ankle, and then my shin. Snow seems deep here. Momentum pushes me forward, and more weight rocks under my front foot. Oddly, my boot is still settling into the soft snow. It should feel firm by now. I sink almost to my knee. What the? The ground beneath my foot caves. Snow's collapsing. A burning electric shock of fear jolts my body. Before I can even say it or think it, my body knows what's happening. I'm on a snow bridge across a hidden crevasse, and it's giving way. I'm falling. Into the mountain. Instincts take over as I scream a warning to Mike. Falling. Fall, I scream. Gravity yanks me from the world into the belly of the glacier as though something evil has a deadly tentacle around my feet and is dragging me deeper. The monster has me. In a vain attempt to stop, I swing my axe blindly in front of me as I fall. It swishes through the air. I can't reach either side of the crevasse. My gut warns that I am going for a big ride. I start guessing how far I'm falling. Ten feet. Mike's on his belly digging in hard with his axe and boots. The fall should be short. Twenty feet. I can't stop myself now. Thirty feet. I'm going too fast. Mike should have stopped me by now. Something's wrong. Instinctively, I jab my arm out into the darkness, groping for a place to grab hold. I can't see it, but I feel an ice wall. Hard as concrete, race past my gloved finger, the nylon screaming as it skims along. 40 feet. We're almost out of rope. 50 feet. If I'm really in 50 feet, that means Mike's been dragged almost to the crevasse lip. He's running out of space. Come on, Mike. Dig in. Dig in. Stop us. Then the rope goes slack, and I accelerate even more madly than before. Lost in my own fear, 50 feet below him, I can't hear or see Mike. But I suddenly feel his presence. I know he's here. I have dragged my friend into the crevasse with me. Without Mike as a counterweight, digging in, we're both headed for the bottom. Roped together, we soar through the blackness. We've had it. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super fired up today to have Jim Davidson with me, joining me from Fort Collins, Colorado. So, Jim, I really appreciate you joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me in. Yeah, of course, of course. So Jim is the New York Times bestselling author of The Ledge, an inspirational story of friendship and survival. Um, and I absolutely love this book. I was reading it and just so captivated into into the entire story. And I, everybody just heard a little excerpt of it. Um, and I'll get to that in just a second. But just to introduce you a little bit further, Jim is a keynote speaker and resilience expert. Uh, you're a high altitude climber and an expedition leader. Um, you've had a number of different climbs that you've gone on. You climbed Everest back in 2017 and numerous other expeditions um, to give everybody a little bit of context. But like I said, I will have just read out an excerpt from the book of you, your story from Mount Rainier back in 1992 when you kind of just fell into the crevasse and you're going down, you're going down, and then the chapter ends. So what I want to ask you is when you finally get down to the ledge, when when what is your first thought when you finally realize the situation and the stakes that are now in front of you? 
Yeah, the, the stakes came at me in several levels very quickly. First of all, I was buried in snow and had to partially fight my way out. Thought I was going to suffocate under that snow and managed to get through that. And I'm still buried up to my chest. And then I find my partner buried in the snow next to me, my good friend and climbing partner, Mike Price. And tragically, he was critically injured in the fall. And then I totally focused on trying to get to him fully so I could start CPR, sadly, and then did that CPR for quite a while. And it didn't bring him back. And there in the darkness, my friend Mike slipped away. And that was just one problem after the next. I was devastated the loss of my friend and racked with guilt right off the bat. And then I began to wonder, where the heck are we? And then I had to dig myself out the rest of the way. And that is when I found myself standing on the ledge next to the body of my friend, looking deeper into the crevasse as the crevasse stretched deeper and deeper below us. So it was just this series of growing problems and, and scarier problems that came at me for probably for a good half hour until I fully realized that I was trapped on a ledge deep inside the glacier. Yeah, right. Because it's it is crazy because this it's just huge tragedy. But you have to kind of refocus relatively quickly to the situation and that you have to survive. But as you kind of go in the go back and forth in the book, you realize that you're going back and forth between the loss and needing to survive back and forth like that. So one thing I was interested in is: Do you think that he passed away basically immediately? in the in the fall when he got in that really uncomfortable situation or do you think it took a second I, to me it sounded like he must have gone almost immediately it, it took a few minutes mike was critically injured in the fall and and basically was suffocating as i was still trapped in the snow trying to get to him i could hear him i couldn't reach him i couldn't see him he was a few feet away from me and we were both buried in the snow so it took a few moments when that's the time when i was literally clearing my face off getting one hand free starting to work on clearing my other hand free and eventually dug out enough that I could lean forward about a foot or two to, to, to reach him. So it took a few minutes. His injuries were severe. Um, and uh, that process of him being trapped under the snow, he couldn't help himself and I couldn't get to him. So it was just sort of this growing and, and unfolding tragedy. And that just made it all, all the worse for both of us and, and scarier too. Gotcha. So let's go into now, now kind of how you're climbing out. I know back and forth in your head, you kind of have the I can, I can't kind of thing back and forth. And I think a lot of people every single day convince, we convince ourselves that we're we're not capable of things that we are truly capable of, but sometimes we don't know until we actually try or are forced into a situation. So how can we start to ignore that voice in our head that tells us that we're not capable of something that we might truly be capable of? Well, yeah, that was absolutely my struggle for a long time was, uh, you know, I was just torn, like you said, between I've got to climb out of here. There's no way you can climb out of here. I've got to try. How can I even try? It's way beyond my capacity. And, and that was the thing was to try and not give up in the face of that. And I was absolutely up and down over the course of a good hour while I was trapped inside the crevasse. Um, but it was actually the loss of my friend Mike and the things that he had taught me that really kind of tipped the scales towards, well, I have to try. Mike did his best to save me from that 80-foot fall inside the crevasse. So I can't just quit because it's too hard or it's too scary. I've, I've got to do my job. I've got to do my best for the team right now. So really, Mike's example is what spurred me to kind of go for the 51%. I'll try the best I can and not give in to that 49% of I'm scared out of my mind, too scared to try. So that's what got me going. And then over the course of many hours climbing out, I still teeter-tottered back and forth. And as I wore down physically and emotionally and spiritually, um, it was really what the things that Mike had taught me through the years of being a climbing partner, the things my dad had taught me working construction about how you never quit when someone's counting on you. You do your absolute best, even if it's really, really hard and scary. Those are the things that kept me going when my body gave out. So um, we do have to kind of fight that wall of fear and that wall of uncertainty and dig into our core of resilience. And that's what I try to get into the book with my writing partner, Kevin Vaughn. Mm, yeah, because it's funny. I use that phrase that I that I just used for you is we convince ourselves that we're not capable of things that we are capable of. I I say that sometimes. I teach fit, group fitness classes, and I, I a lot of times say that to the people that I'm coaching. And a lot of times people are running on the treadmill, and I think some people hold them back sometimes about going a certain speed that they actually could go, but they convince themselves for whatever reason that they're not able to do that. So I always try to use that phrase. Um, so they can tap into something, some other internal motivation in order to get them to go a little bit further. 
Right. And, and that's what I refer to as personal resilience, which is where does your resilience come from? Maybe it comes from losing your best friend, like I happen to have happen with me and Mike on Mount Rainier. Maybe it's your faith. Maybe it's the folks that raise you. If you know where your resilience comes from, when you hit those hard walls, you can tap into that deep core strength faster. And I also think that it's um, going beyond yourself also helps, which is like, if I was just thinking about me and trying to save myself, I might have given it this half try and quit because it was too scary and too hard. But darn it, this is bigger than me. Uh, Mark, uh, Mike gave us everything he had to save me. I can't just not put in my share. So thinking about the things that he had given me and my dad and others, that's where I said, this is way bigger than me. This is beyond what I may or may not think I can do, what I'm willing to try. It's about other people. And when you start thinking about other people, that's when the strength and the, and the fortitude can just really, really grow. Yeah, I like how you said that we all kind of have this inner resilience and you have to find a way to tap into that, into yourself. So you have the, obviously the story, the tragedy, um, and not everybody has something that big and may, maybe in a sense that obvious to tap into right. in order to find their inner, inner resilience. So how do you think people on a, a people who don't have that sort of a situation can tap into their inner resilience and they can find that thing, that extra motivation to push through. Right. I think you can do it one of two ways. One is you can uh, listen to podcasts, read books, watch movies, and be inspired by others and say, wow, if that person can do that, maybe I can do this thing that seems a little scary. So you can be inspired and uplifted by others. You can also take strength even from bad things that happen, bad things that happen to other people, bad things that happen to you. So you look at a traumatic situation. Maybe you were raised in poverty and you go, Darn it, I remember what it was like to not have enough food in the house. That's not happening to my kids. And you can use that as a source of strength. And that's where you take the bad things that happen and convert them over into a good thing. Um, it's what psychologists call post-traumatic growth. When a traumatic thing happens, it's not easy, but you can use that to fuel your growth. So you kind of have to look across your own personal landscape. Is there someone that inspires you and lifts you up? Is there something bad that happened that, darn it, you don't want that to happen to somebody else? And that you can get that growth from that trauma. Mm, that's powerful. I think it's important that people sometimes take the time to actually sit down and think about that. Because if you can't find motivation for some reason, maybe you need to like just do a little bit of deeper thinking uh, and try to pick those things out. But I think that's cool. Um, yeah, kind of so, survey your personal history. Exactly. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, so obviously it took a while and I, you talk a little bit about it in the book to get to the point where you felt comfortable telling the story afterwards. So I want you to talk a little bit about that kind of like mental journey of after this tragic loss, how did you start becoming comfortable telling the story? Yeah, it, it took a long time and came in several phases. At first, after the loss of my friend, Mike, I was all beat up physically and spiritually as well. I had to take a little time just to kind of recover. So my wife and I went on a trip to Nepal to go trekking, which is a place that I'd hope to climb with Mike someday, and that couldn't happen. But my wife and I could go there and kind of honor Mike's life, and we had a ceremony for him at the uh, base of Mount Everest. So this, there was sort of a slow healing process over several months. Uh, but I had to go back to making a living and being a family man. We were married, and we had one baby and bought a house and had another baby. So life kind of goes on, so you have to kind of rise up to that. And I, the big driving force for me was uh, what can I take out of this really bad thing that happened to Mike and me and try and make something good out of it? And I didn't have the answer for a long time. It just seemed like it was just this bad, nasty thing that happened. And part of me didn't even want to look at it. It's like, well, I'll just pretend it didn't happen. Uh, move on with your life. But, but it did happen. It's part of my life now. Um, and so I wanted to share the story of what happened to Mike and me. And so I started doing some writing, but I wasn't sure where I was going. Um, I, then I realized maybe what I should try and do is distill out the lessons that would help other people face challenges in their lives. So then I started doing some speaking, and that took you know, it took 10 years just to start getting to around to the point of maybe I should tell the story because I didn't quite know how to write it up yet. But if I tell the story at meetings, maybe somebody can find something that will help them get through their own trauma, their own crevasse in life. And that's what started. Uh, but that happened uh, boy, that was 12 years after the accident on Mount Rainier. And so that began a long journey of becoming a speaker and becoming a writer to try to distill out the lessons. So it doesn't come fast. and It doesn't come easy. I mean, uh, the book, The Ledge, came out uh, 19 years after the accident. It took that long for me to figure out what the lessons for other people were and how to put them down on the page with my writing partner and, and put them out there in a way that would help other people. Yeah, I really like that, how you said that, to finding out how to distill the lessons out of the experience in order to kind of be in service to other people. Because I think a lot of people go through a lot of 
negative situations, not necessarily uh, as tragic as yours, hopefully, but a lot of people go through negative situations. And if you look at it in that, through that lens of how can I distill the lessons out of this experience in order to help other people going through the experiences in their life. And I think that is a really good way to change your mind or, or shift your mind away from the negative and then how can I serve people kind of moving forward. Yeah, you just said it twice now, serve and be, be of service to others. It's like you can't make that bad or tough situation go away. All you can do is use it as fuel, that post-traumatic growth. And not only for yourself, like how am I going to change my life? How am I going to be a better person and contribute more? But also how can I share that with others? And that can take a long time to figure out. I mean, post-traumatic growth is not some easy thing that happens a month after the car accident or after the medical mishap. It takes years to decades to ask yourself, what is the lesson to me? How can I make that meaningful to other people? And in what format will I share? Maybe it's service in your church or in the community or helping the youth. There's lots and lots of ways, infinite number of ways to help, but you kind of have to feel that vibe and find that lesson and then use it to help others. And that becomes really powerful because that can fuel you through that next big challenge, that next opportunity. I mean, I had to spend years learning how to become a good writer in order to write the ledge with my writing partner. And I had to spend years learning how to become a good speaker. But the point was, if I just die with the story and these lessons inside me, then no one's going to benefit. So I've got to sharpen my skills in order to be able to put this out there to make it of value to others. So that, you know, my trying to reach others is what gave me the strength to spend gosh knows how much time becoming a better speaker and a better writer and put the message out there. And so mm -hmm. it really does become fuel for you to turn yourself into a better version of you and to help others. Yeah, no, I love that because I think that description was perfect for me. One of my fuel or like kind of my main fuel that I try to remind myself often is I want to become the best version of myself. Yes, for me, so I can see kind of what, I, what I'm capable of, but also because I feel like it's my responsibility to present the best version of myself to my loved ones and to everyone out there so that I can be of service in the best way possible to them. And I think that's exactly what you did in order to, in, in terms of discerning the lessons out of the story. But I think m moving forward after the accident, I think a lot of people would probably be curious about how you gained the courage to continue to climb after something like that. And I think, because again, I think people can relate to it. They go through a negative situation, a negative experience, and they're like, I'm never going to do anything like that ever again, because I don't want the possibility of something bad happening again. So talk a little bit about your thought process towards continuing to climb moving forward after the accident. Yeah. And those things went through my mind for years, really for the better part of five years after the climbing accident in 1992. I definitely uh, returned to the wilderness soon. I went hiking, did easy skiing, very simple rock climbing, very safe. And things are well within the norm for me because I was scared out of my mind. I, I didn't know if it would be fun or if it would bring up too much trauma and pain. And I just want to run away from it. I said, I don't have to go back. There's lots of things I can do in this world. We all can. Um, and so I can go do other things that will be fun and rewarding and, and help help me grow. But being in the wilderness had always been sort of a fuel for me, both physically and mentally and spiritually. Um, and so I thought just to walk away from that, I, I need to find out if it's still valuable for me. So I went back and I started very slow. I just started doing simple things, like I said, and then slowly worked my way into harder rock climbing, kind of going back into the deeper waters that I used to be in. And then the Big one was, will I go back to ice climbing? Will I go back to climbing vertical ice like Mike, Mike and I used to do? And then the biggest one, will I go back on a glacier? Will I step back onto a glacier where those cracks in the ice, those crevasses still exist? And that was scary and that was hard. But again, I did it in, in service of a team, which was somebody asked me, hey, Jim, will you help me lead college students on their first expedition? We'll take them to Nepal. We'll climb 19,000 footers and 20,000 footers, and that will help them become better climbers, better team members, and hopefully help them with their life. And so I was scared to go back on the glacier for sure, but if I'm going to lead these young people, I've got to get over my fear and get back out there. So again, trying to help other people is what gave me the courage to nervously step back on that first glacier. So it was a slow process of going back to it, and I gave myself permission to bail out. If it, if it was too scary or too upsetting, I wouldn't do it. But just sort of slowly embracing it again, I found out that I did still like being in the mountains. And um, that was sort of my path, if you will. And so I also felt I was honoring a little bit what I stood for and Mike stood for before the accident, which was going out and trying to do our best in that particular area that resonated with us, the mountains. So I felt like I was honoring him a little bit as well to not just run away in fear, but to go back and try and embrace the goodness that I could get from the mountains that Mike and I love so much. 
Cool. I love that. And you, you know, you said that it, it, climbing has always been a source of fuel for you, a source of inspiration uh, in, a, in a number of different ways. What do you think is something that you learned from climbing that you wouldn't have otherwise learned if you hadn't climbed? Good question. Um, I think it's the combination of absolutely giving your best, but being very humble about the outcome, which is you might train for a year, you might fly away to Alaska and be there for 29 days and work so hard and do everything right for you and your teammates. And on your summit day, it snows. That's it. It mm. snows. You go home. That's Jeez. the end of that. Um, and so you can't be totally tied to the success and the outcome and the, the little uh, flag to wave that I stood on the summit. It has to be much, much more than that. Uh, because it could snow. You could get a stomach bug. Your uh, partner may sprain his ankle or you might sprain your ankle. And so those things are out of your control. So you do everything you can to control the outcome. And then in the very end, ego-wise, you have to let go of the outcome. You have to accept what is. And even if we get 99% of the way to a summit and don't step on it and come home, well, look at, look at all the things I got. I got to be in the wilderness. I got to be with my friends. I'm in better shape. I hopefully helped out a few people along the way. I learned something about that mountain and that country. I got tons and tons of reward. I just didn't get the little flag-waving reward of standing on the summit. So it's, it's kind of an interesting combo of driving really hard, doing everything you can and anything you can to increase the chances of success and safety, but not being hung up on that little piece of reward at the end. Enjoy the ride and the outcome, regardless of whether or not you get that little piece that you're aiming for. I love that. And it's one thing I was thought about when you were going through that is I interviewed a, a three-time MMA world champion and their training is similar in the sense that they train for so long for the buildup of one fight. And I mean, I mean, he like he fought back in January and still doesn't have a, his, know his next fight yet. And he, on this last one, he, he lost his fight after being a three-time MMA world champion and he was very humbled by it, but he also realize that it doesn't define the loss doesn't define him all the things that he kind of did leading up to it and the other bigger things in life defined who he is and, and i feel like the whole thing is just enjoying the journey over the destination and and that's kind of one of kind of what i want to ask you but i feel like you might have kind of answered it is how do you enjoy the journey over the destination a couple of things i feel like you mentioned was take note of the things that you improve in along the journey so I'll just kind of leave the question there and see if you have anything else to add on to that. Yeah, we're, we're kind of circling it, but but absolutely, it's 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 not so much reaching that goal. That's the things that by taking on the challenge, those will refine you into a better version of you, which may inspire somebody else, or you'll be able to help somebody else along the way. So it's being willing to some, to, it's being willing to be someone to take on the challenge and keep refining yourself. It's not so much reaching that singular goal, and it's true whether whether you're interested in. MMA or music or marathons or becoming a writer, you go as far as you can. Uh, you may not win the Pulitzer, you may not win the world championship, you may not stand on Everest, but if you go on that journey, think about how much better, stronger, hopefully kinder and smarter you will be. That's the real reward. So it's the attraction of that distant goal, but don't get hung up on reaching that particular goal. Yeah, I absolutely love it. You just said that. I and mean, I kind of, you might have seen me kind of smirk a little bit because actually a podcast episode that I just released, um, a guy mentioned a quote very similar um, saying that a lot of times the point of a goal isn't necessarily reaching it, but it's being the type of person who is willing to attempt it. And that quote actually was kind of a, a tipping point for me and inspiring me to chase down a goal that I just started to chase down. Um, and it's running a sub five minute mile. And for, for me, it, I was a little bit afraid to, to start it because it's like, I don't know if I can actually get it. But hearing that, what you just reiterated, that it's not necessarily reaching it, but it's about being the person who's willing to attempt it and kind of put yourself out there and trying it and seeing what you learn along the way. Um, so I just absolutely love that. And it was super relevant to me and my life now. And I think relevant to a lot of people um, in their life as well. Yeah. And here's a test for it to ask yourself if you're picking a big enough goal. If you pick a goal to try and refine yourself and it doesn't make you nervous, well, it's not going to teach you anything. Let's say you're running a, an eight minute mile and you want to run a seven minute and 50 second mile. Well, that's probably not going to scare you. And you know what? That's not going to change you very much. But to pick something grand like a six minute mile or in your case, a five minute mile. Wow. That should probably scare you. And if it scares you, it's a big enough goal to change you. 
And that's something meaningful, potentially. Mm, I love that. I love that. That's a, definitely a question you have to ask yourself and be honest with yourself about. So I think that's cool. So you're a resilience expert, right? I want to ask a couple different versions of the same question. So how? what are two keys to being resilient in the middle of a really tough pressure situation that you found yourself in a number of times on Rainier, on Everest, and, and things of that nature? Yeah, I've, I've been a climber for 37 years. And, you know, most of the time the climbs go perfectly smooth and we're home for dinner. But when things go off track, either to your team or to other teams on the mountain you encounter, that's when you get put to the test. And that's when you find out how can you be resilient yourself and how can you add to the resilience of others. I think two of the key things are right off the bat is to accept what's the situation. Have situational awareness and accept it. So maybe you're trying to summit and suddenly a storm comes in. This climb is over. You have to be aware of what's going on. You can't deny and say, oh, no, the weather's fine. It's getting better. Well, no, it's not. It's getting horrible. And if we don't turn around now, something really bad is going to happen. So you've got to be aware of the situation and accept it. Um, that's the first step. And that, that opens up your mind to possibilities. Should we leave the mountain? Should we go down to the last camp and come back again tomorrow? Will we have food and fuel for tomorrow? It opens up your minds to forming new possibilities. And the other thing is when the situation becomes uncertain uh, and or scary, is to try and project confidence. Now, that doesn't mean fake confidence, like if there's a raging storm, I'd say, oh, don't worry, Nick, the weather's beautiful, because you might think I'm crazy. You're like, look at this weather, Jim. We're not going up to the summit of this mountain. Jim must be out of touch. It's not that kind of confidence. It's confidence that between the two of us and our experience, we can get through this. I'm not sure what the answer is yet. I, I might have no idea what the answer is yet. But if we think this through, and if we try really hard, and we're willing to endure, willing to do what's necessary, maybe it's staying in our high tent for a week, on half rations, and then the weather's going to clear, if we're willing to do that, we can get through this and maybe still reach this goal. So it's be aware of the situation and start accepting it and try and project some confidence. Those two things together, what you're trying to do is spark resilience. You're trying to spark resilience in those around you, but also in yourself at the same time. And if you can spark resilience, that gets everyone calmer and it opens up possibilities. Yeah, I really liked the... The first one in this, this be situational awareness, um, realize what's going on, but then accept it. Because I think that second part almost is the most important part because that's what I think really allows you to open your horizons and open the creativity as to the ways that you can overcome it. Because if you don't accept, fully accept that it's happening and there's no other way out, then you're not going to fully commit to f finding out the solutions of it. Yeah, and you, your mind gets locked up. Maybe you and I opened a hamburger restaurant and we're doing okay and across the street, someone opens up another hamburger restaurant. If we just sit there and get mad, we hope they go away and we hope their, their business fails. We're just sitting there staring at them as opposed to looking at each other and saying, what can we do to make our restaurant and our hamburgers better? Maybe we need advertising. One of us should go to chef school. I don't know what the answer is. But if we're just hoping they'll just go away, that this problem will just disappear, we're not going to be able to do anything about it. So we have to open up our minds and say, well, they're here. They're right across the street. What are we going to do about it? And that's acceptance part opens up possibilities. Yeah. So I want to ask a couple or uh, a question based off of the confidence thing. So I want you to kind of p pick out a particular experience you had. Maybe it's on Everest. Maybe it's on a different expedition where something bad happened. You were aware of the situation. You accepted it. And then how did you gain the confidence to start overcoming the negative situation. Yeah, uh, in my writing, I was writing up about this incident a couple of years ago. So we're climbing up Mount McKinley, Denali up in Alaska, 20,320 feet. This is uh, 2002, it's a really cold place. Not super hard technically on the route we're on, but very cold, very dangerous. And we were on our summit push and the weather was clearing and we're doing pretty good. We're two hours from the top and we ran into a group that had found a solo climber, he had no partner, Passed out in the snow, he had three critical health problems at once, and there's a good chance this person could die. And so in an instant, our trip towards the summit was over. That's it. We've got to try and help save this person. Uh, he had some very serious medical issues going on because he had spent the night out alone uh, in sub-zero weather at 19,700 feet. Um, and he was basically unconscious. We couldn't get much out of him. We didn't know what his problem was. Uh, so we're just kind of going from a medical survey from outside. So anyways, our, our, we had to accept instantly this climb is over. We've talked about it for 20 years. We've trained about for it for a year. Uh, we've been here for whatever it was, 16 days. And in a moment, the climb was over. So now our goal is to support this person, get him hopefully to a hospital, and also not get ourselves killed in the process 
by being trapped in a rescue above 19,000 feet on Denali. So it, it, it was cold, it was brutal, and the decision had to be made in an instant. We couldn't sit around for two hours and talk about the pros and the cons and the possibilities. We just accepted it right off the bat, and it, it just sort of reversed our mindset, which is we've got to get this guy down and ourselves down without getting anybody killed or anybody getting frostbitten. So it can happen fast like that. Sometimes it's slower. Maybe you realize your hamburger restaurant, the analogy we just had, uh, the example, is not working, and you think about it for months, and you've got to accept that. Okay, uh, you and I aren't good enough restaurant owners and good enough cooks. This is not going to work. Now, what are we going to do about it? So those are just a couple of examples of uh, sometimes it comes at you fast, sometimes slow, but when you, you can almost feel that tipping point, like this has to change, that's when you have to change. Yeah, so I want to kind of go back to the, similar phrase question that I asked before, two keys to resilience. But now I want you to talk about it in the sense of moving forward after you have overcome the situation. Or maybe you didn't fully overcome the situation. How do you still move forward and maybe attack a similar situation in the future with resilience? Like two keys to be able to attack a future situation similarly with resilience. Right. Um, the first one is uh, whether it's an easy problem or difficult, whether you succeed in solving it or not, if our restaurant goes out of business, you've got to distill the lessons from that that you can and take them with you to the next challenge, the next opportunity. So uh, maybe our restaurant failed and then we have to ask ourselves, what went wrong? We're not good enough business people, we're not good enough cooks, what, what went wrong? And we've got to face the hard truth of that and that can take a while. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, we all struggle a little bit with self-honesty and looking at each other and saying, you know, Nick, here's where I failed you, and here's where I think you failed me. That could be a difficult and long process for it, maybe months and years. But we've, we've got to go through that and take those lessons with us because you just paid a big price to learn those lessons. For goodness sakes, distill them and take them with you onto the next challenge, onto the next op opportunity. Um, so that's one thing is to have that honest self-talk with yourself and others. And then the other is to recognize in the future where you can apply that lesson. Um, it may be a situation in mountain climbing where – Later on, I get, uh, I get involved and there's a, a potential to rescue somebody and I go, oh, I remember all the hard-won lessons from Denali. This is the time we've got to apply those lessons. I may not like it. I may not want to get involved in this rescue, but gosh darn it, I went through that Denali rescue and this is my chance to give back and play those cards in service to somebody else. So you kind of have to carry that lesson with you and look for your chance to utilize those lessons to help out in another tough situation. So I think it's almost a responsibility that we all have, whether you succeed or fail, if you get through that tough situation, is to carry those lessons and look for a chance to apply them. And that's, that's part of what drove me to write The Ledge and to keep climbing, which is if I just kind of moved away from climbing and stuck my head in my dark closet and cried myself to sleep at night, that would be understandable because I, I lost my best buddy and it was a traumatic experience. But that's not going to help me and that's not going to help anybody else. So I had to go through the difficulties of putting myself on the page and sharing myself through speaking in the hopes that somebody else can take something from it and apply it to their challenge. And then something bad can happen, uh, excuse me, something good can happen from that bad thing that happened on Rainier many years ago. Yeah, I love it. Flip it on its head. Um, so I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, 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 the situational awareness and accepting what's going on because I honestly do feel like that's one of the toughest things that people – people deal with is not being able to fully accept situations because I think once you fully accept things, that's when you can start, like we talked about earlier, having the creativity spark in terms of how to overcome that. Is there a particular situation that you've been through, through hiking or maybe just your everyday life that was the toughest to fully accept and start moving forward from? Uh, been a few. Let me try and think about one. Probably the one that comes to mind is, um, I would wanted to climb Everest my whole life. I started reading climbing books when I was 14 years old, became a climber when I was 20, climbed on expeditions for 25, 30 years, and I finally got to go to Mount Everest in 2015. Um, go over to the mountain, you know, I trained, got in the best shape of my life at age 52, by far the best shape of my life. Wow. Go over to the mountain, we do our warm-up climbs and treks and everything. We finally get on our first day on the mountain on April 25th, 2015. And just a few hours after leaving base camp, an earthquake struck. A huge earthquake struck Nepal. 7.8 magnitude, the biggest earthquake in 81 years to slam into Nepal. And I realized right away that this climb is over. I mean, a little part of me was hoping, oh, well, we'll, we'll somehow everything will be okay. But as the truth of the disaster unfolded, we found out that people in base camp had been killed. And then we found out people up and down the Kathmandu Valley below us had been wow. wounded and killed. 
And then we found out it was actually a national tragedy and thousands of people have been killed. And as we learned that knowledge over two days, it sunk in deeper and deeper that climbing is not very important right now. We have to try and help the people around us get off the mountain, get out of the mountains, and then try and help out Nepal by, by raising some money and, and helping literally you know, do some rebuilding. So that was a tough pill to swallow because I'd been dreaming of going to Everest for, for over 30 years. I had trained over a year. I was stacking up 20 years of experience, and, and yet it was all over in just a few hours after leaving base camp. So that was a tough one to swallow, but we could sort of sense the reality unfolding, and that's when we had to ask ourselves, what do we do now? And what we figured we had to do was to try and help out, to use those skills we had as strong climbers. We had food and fuel, and nobody in our team was hurt. So we planned on being Nepal, so let's help out where we are right now. So it takes a little while to, to turn the mental ship when the stakes are so high. But once you accept that, then it becomes kind of empowering. It's like, okay, we're here. Um, we're strong. We can move rocks. We, we've got communication skills as speakers and writers. We can, we can get some fundraising going. And then it gets kind of empowering to use what you do have to apply it to the new challenge, which was helping Nepal recover, not climbing a mountain. Right, right. So I didn't get a chance to really learn too much about the the Everest situation and the earthquake and everything like that. And so I'm fascinated and I know everybody else will to learn just a little bit more about that situation. So if you could just in a few minutes um, kind of recap after maybe the couple of days where you realized the magnitude of the situation, what happened from there and how you ended up surviving, helping some people and getting back down. Yeah, we, we were, my team and other climbing teams were spread over the mountain. I happened to be at Camp 1 at 19,700 feet when the earthquake struck. All these avalanches poured down around our Camp 1. We got scared and we had some near misses, but nobody was hurt or killed at Camp 1. But sadly, there were 18 people killed in base camp, the deadliest day ever on Mount Everest. So we were trying to get off the mountain to get back to base camp to help the wounded, to help process the dead, and to help start the Nepalis from start the rebuilding process. And as we worked our way down the mountain and started going down valley, we realized the scope of the problem as the news trickled into us. So it took days to get off Mount Everest. It took weeks to get out of Nepal, did some rebuilding and disassembling of half-destroyed houses. And then we were home and we're all sort of feeling terrible for our Nepali friends, and the Nepali people that their country was, a good portion of their country was wrecked. That's when we started doing the fundraising. So it's almost like as, as our awareness grew and the problem seemed worse, um, we had to go on to that next phase. And so that went on literally for months and even years of doing fundraising for Nepal and, and, and helping them try to get back on their feet. And it was two years later in 2017, I found myself speaking at a lot of events, telling people, hey, if you want to help Nepal, please contribute to this fundraiser that I'm, that I'm helping raise money for, not for an organization I ran, but one that had existed before the earthquake. Uh, we're trying to raise money to help rebuild schools in a resilient way so that the schools are not just stronger, but they will bend and flex with the earthquake to be resilient mm -hmm. and not get wrecked by the earthquake because the schoolrooms are not only important for the kids, they're also community centers in Nepal. So anyways, helping to raise money for that. Uh, but in that process of telling people, go visit Nepal, tourism is their number one industry, I started asking myself, maybe I should go back. And that's what led me eventually to go back to Mount Everest in 2017. So it was a long, bumpy journey. But again, it's that, that thing of trying to stay calm, accepting what is, and asking yourself, how can we try and steer this bad thing towards a better thing? Mm, gotcha, gotcha. So I want to change tones a little bit to the, uh, to the conversation because I think that from the book, you can tell that your dad had such a big influence in your life. And I think it was really cool how what you did when you were younger – really prepared you for the biggest situation of your life and you're just, just your life in general moving forward. So what do you think is the biggest lesson that you've learned that you learned from your dad is? Yeah. And, and I know what you're referring to. My dad had an industrial painting company. I started right. working for him when I was eight years old. By the time I was 12, I was walking roofs. And by the time I was 18, we were climbing high voltage electrical towers with 230,000 volts. Yeah. Crazy work. I mean, it's hard to believe anybody would want to do that, let alone put their kid in that position. But you're absolutely right. The things I learned with him were what I took with me to the mountains. And I think really we had a small paint crew, anywhere from two to 10 guys. And really that's about climbing expedition in size, uh, two people, 10 people, sometimes more. But basically working with my dad taught me to work in a small interdependent group, trying to do a tough job in a dangerous situation, but stay calm and keep asking yourself, how can I add to the strength of the team? And that may be holding somebody else's ladder while they do the hard work, and it may start to rain. You don't walk away. You keep holding their ladder because that's your job right now. And later on, they'll be helping you with something else. So no matter how difficult it was, 
what's my job to help out the team either be safe and or reach this this summit goal by taking that from the painting world and moving to the climbing world hopefully it's helped me be a better partner and a better uh, leader on these expeditions and contribute to the team's success and safety so that's probably the biggest single one so again yeah. lessons learned from painting i took it on to my next challenge which happened to be everest my next everest eventually after 30 uh, five years of being a climber, I got to apply those lessons on Mount Everest. Gotcha, gotcha. That's awesome. Yeah, I just loved the stuff that you did when you were little was nuts. I was like, it was crazy that everything, like the the Brit, I think the bridge was one of the ones you talked about a lot in the book. Just so many like super dangerous things that I love how your dad just had the confidence in you that you were going to get find a way to get it done. Yeah. And as I said in the book, I mean, I was downright scared half the time, uh, but I had confidence in my dad. Um, and, you know, if, 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 a, if an adult put a child in those situations today, they'd probably go to jail if it was their stranger. <laughs> and if it was their, their own child, they'd probably be in double jail. Um, right. But those things that I learned working with him and my uncles in those crazy situations were the very things that I think have kept me alive several times and uh, through the years of climbing and allowed me to hopefully help out as well. So again, it's that that traumatic, difficult experience, if you can distill the lessons and take them with you, you'll be better off later and you can share them with others. That's the post-traumatic growth thing that can be tricky and time-consuming, but I think that's the magic of uh, of taking those lessons with you and sharing them. Yeah, I like that phrase a lot and the takeaway from it. So another person that's obviously been a huge influence in your life is your wife, Gloria. I uh, met her back at Montana State, or uh, right, Montana State University? Yes, yes good memory, um, Montana State University, yeah. Yeah, and she, uh, she gave you that medal early on to kind of always remind you of her when you were climbing. And what are you guys coming up on a 30-year anniversary? Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, we're coming up on our 30th anniversary in about just about another uh, 12, 15 days here. So Nice, well, congratulations. Years through all the craziness of, of life in general, plus these expeditions, and she's a Bit of an adventure too, so we'll we'll go on a trip together, celebrate our anniversary. So thanks for that. Yeah, she's uh, as I say in the introduction of my professional speaking, that I have an intro that someone will read before I go up and speak to corporate groups. Uh, the last line of that is Jim's been married for twenty nine years, and his wife is a very very tolerant woman. So <laughs> yeah, that's what it says. That's hilarious. That's what it says on your uh, your website too. So to to stick with her, what do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself through being with her? Uh, that uh, that would take a couple of uh, a podcast shows for us to go through. Uh, I'll try and narrow down um, uh, the most important ones, uh, which is I can be a hard-driven person. You know, I want to get things done and go for the next goal and train hard and everything. And she supports that for sure. But she constantly reminds me to think about the people around me, somebody else who may not be feeling well today, somebody who's not at that experience level. How are you going to be able to help them get through or somebody who's just not as lucky as I am either? Uh, work-wise or health-wise? How are you going to be able to help them? So uh, she, kind of like my mom, just constantly reminds me of what it would be like to be in somebody else's shoes. And how can you not just be focused on your goal or the achievement, but helping out along the way. And so that's a, a, a good, um, you know, just be a good human uh, in the, in the, as you go on the journey. So that's a good reminder for me always. Um, and she keeps me grounded in that way. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're a New York Times bestselling author. You're a very accomplished speaker. You've gone on all these different expeditions and climbed some of the biggest mountains in the world. What is something, so you have a lot of things to be proud of, I guess is what I'm getting at. You have a lot of achievements. What What is something that you're maybe most proud of that people wouldn't necessarily think about? Hmm. Um, I'd say probably being to the best that I could being an involved parent. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I grew up in a household that, that I, excuse me, I grew up in a household that had a mom and a dad. It was a big advantage. Families are blended. Families are different. The, the world moves at a fast pace, but just being involved in the young people in your life. I was on the receiving end of that when I was a kid. Um, you know, I traveled as a professional speaker and a climber for sure. But when I'm here, I try and be as involved as I could have been when my kids were growing up and now they're a little older. Uh, 22 and uh, 23 and 25, but um, just trying to support them. So when I am home, trying to be an involved dad and family member, because you're trying to pass those skills on, both you're caring, hopefully a little bit of osmosis, learning from the parent to the child. So that's, you know, that's not a flamboyant thing. And and I think being a great parent, uh, it doesn't show in the size of your house or the expensiveness of your car or the fanciness of your clothing. You might make more money if you stayed more time in the office and, and, and made more money, but I think that comes at a cost to your kids and your family and your loved ones. So I think it takes a little bit of internal strength to say, no, darn it, 
um, spending time with my kids and my spouse and my significant other is more important than making more money and having a flashier car. It's, it's, um, the rewards are more internal, but I think more lasting, which is to pass on what you know and support them in whatever their endeavors are. So mm. thanks for asking. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Um, so one of the things I think is the most important thing in order to, term, to get closer to the best version of yourself is to have vision and to have clarity in terms of where you want to go. So what I want to ask you is when you try to picture one year, two year, five year, 10 year gym down the road and where you want to be, what does that process look like in order to determine and gain more clarity onto where you want to be down the road in the future? Yeah, um, I think it's kind of twofold. One is what's that exciting goal? What's that exciting thing? You know, whether it's becoming a musician or a writer or whatever, uh, to run that five minute mile in your case that you put forward earlier, um, you know, to, to, to envision that and go, wow, that would be incredible. And it probably scares you, like we talked about. It has to be a big enough goal that it probably scares you. And in order to reach it, you're going to have to do more. You're going to have to become more. And that's when the, the tough self-talk comes on and say, all right, if I want to do that thing that scares me, what do I have to do to become that person in order to be able to run that five-minute mile uh, to write that book, uh, that kind of thing? And you'll soon find that there's some shortcomings in, in yourself or more often in myself. Like, okay, um, geez, I'm, I'm not sure I'm that good a writer. I'm not sure I'm that good an athlete. I've got a lot of work to do. And then I'm, I'm a planner. So I'll lay out a plan of saying, all right, um, I guess I have to move my athletics to this level. And my goodness, I have to admit, I'm carrying 10 extra pounds along my waist. That's got to go. So now I have to learn more nutrition and better discipline to get rid of that weight so that I can, can become a better athlete so that I can even try that thing five years from now. So uh, I, I find myself planning a long list of self-improvement, basically, to get there. And that means uh, that things have to go. I have to let go of some things too. It's like, okay, I used to love orange juice in the morning, but I have to watch my calories and sugar. Orange juice is gone. I have my weaknesses about chocolate chocolate chip cookies. Uh, I had to come up with better systems to limit that if I'm not uh, going to keep this weight on. If I'm going to shed it and become a better athlete, those things have to change. So it's drawn towards the attractiveness of that distance goal, the honesty to where am I now and finding the flaws and the weaknesses of myself that I've got to fix if I'm going to get there in two or five or 10 years. Yeah, that's awesome. I think because when you define who you want to be in the future, only then can you start discerning what it's going to take to become that person. And then like you said, then you can start taking the action on figuring out what it's going to take to become it and, and do it. Um, but before I ask the last question, Jim, I want to acknowledge you because I think you've continue to come back to being a person of service. Like ever since we, we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, how you use that as motivation for you to distill the lessons out of the different experiences that you have in order to hopefully help people in overcoming whatever it is that they're going through in their personal life. And then you talked about it with your, your kids as well, making sure that you're not being necessarily like selfish with your time, trying to make more money, but making sure that you're always present with them and being able to give all the knowledge and all the experiences and all the lessons to them that you possibly can. So just, I think you're the ultimate person of service. Um, and I just want to make sure I acknowledge you for that. Well, thank you. You're being very generous, but you know, just seeing you on the podcast, seeing the best you behind you, that, I, I love that phrase uh, because that that's really what it's all about. I mean, everybody starts at some level and we're trying to get to somewhere else and you may or may not make it, but along the way you are constantly refining yourself into the best version of you. And I, I think really that's, that's the journey and that's the rewards. And whether you, whether you are a musician, you want to play in, you know, uh, on Broadway or you want to run a five minute mile, it, you know, whatever it is, if, if you just keep striving to be the best version of you and take everybody with you uh, around you as long as, as far as you can to help them become their best version, uh, then we're taking turns uplifting each other. And I think that's how we put resilience into each other uh, for that next challenge, that next opportunity, that next Everest down the road. Yeah. And I like how you ended that because it's kind of what I said earlier. It's, Become the best version for yourself, or be, become the best version of you for yourself, yes, but be the best version of yourself for others that you're around so that you can deliver um, all that you possibly can to them. But make sure you guys get this book, The Ledge, an inspirational story of friendship and survival. And to give a little teaser, you mentioned it beforehand. I don't know if you're talking about it yet, but you said you're working on another book moving uh, here in the next few months. So what can maybe people expect from that? Yeah, uh, I'm working hard on it. I've, I've had a busy year of speaking and writing, and I've carved out the next three months to literally focus on, on finishing the writing. That's so awesome. I'm working on it. It's going to be sharing the story of what happened on Everest in 2015 with the earthquake, 
lessons learned about facing uncertainty and resilience and putting that out there. It's going to be out a little bit while. It'll be in the spring of 2021 because uh, it's going to be with St. Martin's Press. So it's going to be a little while until it hits the streets. Uh, but I'm working hard to keep improving myself to share the best stories and lessons that I can. So thanks for asking about that next book. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, when it comes out, we'll have to have you back on to talk the more specifics about that. Um, but make sure you guys go to speakingofadventure.com to learn more about Jim and check out the book and all that good stuff. Is there any other place that people can go and support you or anything like that? Oh, no, that's a great place. Go to speakingofadventure.com and there's all the social media and stuff. And, you know, let's just keep trying to lift each other up and share the good lessons and keep doing our best to refine ourselves and others into the best version of ourselves. Yeah, I love it. And so as you said, I always say that becoming the best version of yourself is a constant journey. I do think that we're always working on that person. Um, I don't think, I think if we think we're there, then we become complacent and we start try, stop trying to work on that person. And so I think it's a constant journey, but I also think it's a pretty u- unique journey. I think there are similar paths that we take. But I also think that the way that I'm going to become the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you become the best version of yourself. So my final question is for you personally, what are three things that you could currently do or three things you could currently work on to get closer to the best version of Jim Davidson that you could possibly be? Uh, Let's see. Um, Keep reading so I can prove my writing. Um, Keep that weight off my waistline, i.e. less cookies and other things so that I can stay fit. (laughs) so that I can stay strong, do things I need to do. And um, now that I'm a a little bit older, I'm coming up on 57, to keep my eyes open for opportunities to lift up other people when they're on their journey, kind of the the old guy helping out the younger folks on their journey. So just keep my eyes peeled and help out where I can. Well, I love it. Always a person of service. I appreciate your time, Jim. Thank you. Great talking to you, Nick. Take care. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this unbelievable story with Jim. If you did, go send him a quick DM on Instagram. I know he'd love to hear your favorite part of the interview. It's always great for guests to get some positive feedback after an episode. If you enjoy this episode, make sure you go leave it a quick review on the Apple Podcasts app or on iTunes. That'd be a great way for you to support the show and to ensure I can continue to bring on great guests like Jim. Remember, use your post-traumatic growth to serve others. Take the time to step outside your experience and to look at it from an outside perspective. That way you can find the lessons that you learned during the experience and communicate those to others so that they can use them in their own lives to level up. And also remember to enjoy the ride. Remember that the goal isn't always about the result. It's not always about getting the tiny flag to raise at the top of the summit to show that you were successful. It's about who you become along the way to the summit. It's about the things you learn. It's about the relationships you build and it's about the lessons that are revealed to you. Make sure you share this episode with a friend, leave a rating and review and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. This podcast is growing, this community is growing, and you do not want to fall behind. So enjoy the ride, learn from your experiences so that you can get closer and closer to your best you.